You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan, what's going on? Not a lot. Not a lot. Just, you know, the semester is moving quicker than, you know, they always, the semesters just always go by so quick. And I'm like, how did we get to November? It's the, what is it? The, the linear nature of time. It just keeps going or slipping, slipping into the future. Yeah. Oh, good. Steve Miller band. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Steve Miller band, which is not at all a good um, segue. I know that we're having a, an episode on about John Dewey. So I did some research on other Deweys. And I wanted to share that with you. Yeah, um, there's okay. a lot. There's a lot of them, right? There's a lot of really great ones. Obviously, um, Thomas Dewey ran for president, and according mm-hmm. to the Chicago Daily Tribune, he beat Harry Truman. I remember that he didn't actually, but that's what they you know put in the paper. Other famous Deweys: Dwight Evans, called Dewey Evans, he called him Dewey. Uh, he was a, a Red Sox uh, baseball player. And one time when I was at a, a game, when he was playing for the Orioles, it was his first game back, he got a standing ovation in Fenway Park. It was nice. That is very nice. So he's well-liked. So, so far, most Deweys seem to be well-liked, except sometimes they don't become president. That, yeah, yeah, poor, poor Thomas. So there's also Dwight Evans, who represents the Pennsylvania second. I don't know if they call him Dewey, but he has the same name as Dwight Evans, the former Red Sox player. Um, so I just kind of mm-hmm. threw him in here. Another famous uh, Dewey, his brother is Huey and Louie. Um, they are from the hit television show DuckTales. Yeah, Dewey Duck, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that was his last. I might have been Dewey the Duck. No, just probably Dewey Duck. He's... <laughs> and I never had clarification if he's related to Do- – no, I think he's Donald's nephew, but also Scrooge's nephew. So I don't know where Scrooge and Donald kind of fit in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, the, of course, the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah. So Melville Dewey is an interesting character. Often when you talk about John Dewey, people actually think first you're talking about Melville Dewey and the Dewey Decimal System. But Melville Dewey, uh, he was kind of in a, you know, a strange sense, the embodiment of efficiency. He really liked efficiency and this idea of having an efficient society. And so he actually took letters out of his name that he saw as unnecessary. Oh my goodness. He wanted to yeah, he wanted to like change his last name to like three letters, spell Dewey in like three letters. But Melville's like M E L V I L, if I remember correctly. Good for him. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's also kind of weird though, can, to be honest, right? Little, like, feels a little OCD um, and a little obsessive. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to work his name into really tiny places. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was ready for Twitter before well oh, before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is pretty good for him. Okay, and so the last one I want to bring up is the Morning Dew. Uh, not a person, but... Not a person, a thing. An I important don't... part of our lives. And sometimes you're like, oh, outside is very dewy. Mm-hmm. So those are the deweys that so, I thought of. Those are really good deweys, and I think it's a good way to come in with kind of a light approach to dewy because sometimes John Dewey can be really kind of a heavy topic. He really, if you ever read his work, he gets into it and... Sometimes, sometimes it's, there's some of his stuff that I really have enjoyed reading and other stuff. I'm like, this is difficult. 
So I do have a confession about John Dewey. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a teacher, and I have taken you know the you know your educational theory classes. I don't remember him uh, mm. as much as I know Vygotsky. Enjoy him. Who's the other one? Piaget, fun. Eric Erickson, love. <laughs> Maslow, I'm kind of cool, and Maslow is becoming very popular nowadays, particularly with school climate. But John Dewey. You know, many of the other white males from history. <laughs> yes, yes. But John Dewey, I, I guess uh, I'm excited to learn more, or at least to, to see how he relates. Well, and better. John Dewey has a whole theory that would explain why are you do or do not remember him. <laughs> so today we're bringing into the podcast somebody who knows John Dewey really well and specifically can relate his work to the social studies. And so we would like to welcome onto the show Daniel Stuckert. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a former social studies teacher from Tampa, Florida. And for the last 12 years, I've been a professor in New York City. I right now work at the City University of New York, Lehman College, which is located in the Bronx section of the city. And as a professor there, I serve as the coordinator of the social studies education program And I'm also the director of the New York City Teaching Fellows Program. And um, the reason I'm the director of the Teaching Fellows Program is that we are in the throes of a major teacher shortage in New York City, and particularly in the Bronx. And it's not just in the areas of STEM or special education or ESL, but we are in desperate need for social studies teachers as well. So if any of your viewers are looking for a job, they should, they should contact me. All right. We'll make sure we have your contact information in our show notes <laughs> later on. And uh, my favorite activities are learning and traveling. So one of the delights of living in New York City is that it is an excellent launch pad to explore the world because you can pro- pretty much get anywhere directly, anywhere in the world. So I've been trying to take advantage of that. What are some places that you uh, have gone that have been very exciting? Well, I think as somebody with a history background, I absolutely love going to Greece and the southern Mediterranean. But I have to say probably my favorite places in the world are really South America. I think it's one of the most underexplored and, and interesting archaeologically, historically, and underappreciated regions. Yeah, I've always felt like the two places particularly that I felt like in the world got the least time in the social studies always felt to me like Africa and South America. And so I I would guess it's no coincidence that they're both south of the equator and, and tend to get a little less attention. But South America just did not come up much in our curriculum that I taught at least. Yeah, I think we're, we're so focused on America and especially the United States that it leaves very little room for really studying the rest of the world in any great detail. Maybe the exception would be Europe, but I, I agree with your thesis, Dan. I think it has a lot to do with studying the northern hemisphere versus the southern hemisphere. It's the bias of the Mercator map. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it makes us think about the north a lot more. Well, I don't get to travel as much as you, Dan, but I've been having I've been exploring a lot of cities on Google Earth lately because Chris Heffernan in a recent ex- episode on teaching geography motivated me to start using Google Earth more. 
Yeah, I used to incorporate that into a technology course I, I taught at a, another college. And I always thought Google has really developed an interesting architecture that is really, really useful for education. And it's more than Google Earth. It's, it's the whole Google Docs, Google Sheets system and this whole sharing economy thing. It's interesting because when I think of things like Google Earth, and I think of them from a Deweyan perspective, which we'll get into, right, John Dewey. Oh, fun. I think, I, yeah, I like to think how I think John Dewey would see, you know, things like Google Earth and the Google tools as, as points of, of interest for students and teachers to think about our world. Because while the, they open up the world to you and you can broaden your views, you can collaborate with people, there's also some interesting sides of Google Earth, right, with the surveillance, all the data they collect. Do we, should everyone know what your backyard looks like, you know, which Google Earth pretty much tells them. And, and so I think there's a lot of interesting curriculum issues yet that you can not just use technologies, but also teach about them as you do it. Interesting. I wonder if people find out that I actually need to rake my backyard today. Well, it depends what day the satellite pictures, right? I hope like they don't look today. That's the, that's the thing. If the satellite pictures got the wrong day, you can look like you never rake. Please don't look at Google Earth today, please. (laughs) (laughs) We get a big kick out of it when we, um, when I Google my mother-in-law's address, we can see her working in her garage. So (laughs) privacy is definitely an issue. That's interesting. So for the world, like she's always in her garage, like she's very, very handy, maybe. Well, she is actually, but yes, you're right. (laughs) Oh, see, maybe it's an accurate portrait of of your mother-in-law. Exactly, exactly. So it's interesting because when I started my graduate program in the late 1990s, it really was the beginning of the popular internet and digital technologies, and they were really just starting to take hold. But we almost had this, um, this really giddy expectation that something great was about to happen. And, it, and somehow the internet and all the information it was about to unlock would somehow magically transform the learning of social, social studies into um, this engaging, worthwhile, and student-centered enterprise. And it never really happened. And, oh. and, and I, th- I think, you know, if you look at what Larry Cuban has written and stuff like that, um, it sort of followed the same trajectory as radio and, and television did beforehand. I absolutely agree. Yeah, Larry Cuban, if you've never read him, he wrote a book in the 80s called Teachers and Machines. And then he wrote a follow-up in 2001 that focused on computer uses in schools. And his basic thesis was, you, you know, that schools saw these tools as being the things that would change curriculum and learning and everything. But they didn't, especially in the ways people imagined. And I think the lesson from it all is that it always, all technology requires good teaching around it. That's interesting because if you think of like the way that, so right now, you know, people are going to one-to-one, you know, one device per student, but I feel like a lot of what they're doing, a lot of what I'm seeing is just kind of worksheets that can be submitted electronically, which really isn't that much of a game change at all. There's obviously that bigger thing that can happen, but it just takes a lot more, um, I don't know, a lot more development, a lot more inspiration, more resources, more time to, to create that stuff rather than just kind of duplicate what we already had, but electronically. I think that this is actually an excellent segue into what makes great teaching. 
you know, what makes meaningful learning experiences, which I think are some of the many questions that John Dewey tried to answer. Awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> I, and I agree with you, Dan, because um, that really, in, in my own life's trajectory, that really started to make me question. And, and, and my research area was technology. And so it really made me start to question and say, why? Why didn't we have this magical transformation where, you know, teachers are going to teach differently and students are going to become more engaged? And I began to think about how the social studies originated and what really were the philosophical and theoretical underpinnings of it. And what I realized is all roads led to John Dewey. And when you study the history of the social studies, you realize it's a relatively new curriculum. It's only about 100 years old. And it wasn't really put into um, practice until the late 1930s. So it's really only less than 80 years old. And, and I want to thank you for, for mentioning my book. I co-authored a book that was published in 2010 about John Dewey and teaching to the whole child, which was much more expansive and not focused particularly on the social studies. So this latest book, I really put a lot of thought into how can we have a social studies that's engaging if we really don't understand these underpinnings and, and, and we really haven't connected all the dots yet. And it's a lot to connect. I think that's the thing about John Dewey. Um, and so before we go further, let me let me give you a little pub on the book that's that's not not out yet, but will be out soon. And I got, was lucky enough to get a early copy and be able to read it. And the book is called Turning Pragmatism into Practice, a Vision, Vision for Social Studies Teachers. Um, and again, it's an excellent read. It really walks you through John Dewey's ideas. Um, Daniel, do you want to just start us off with with talking about who John Dewey was? Sure. So John Dewey has probably been the most influential education philosopher that has ever lived. And that's a really, really grand statement to make. But we have to realize that this is somebody who was born before the Civil War and lived into the nuclear age. He died in 1952 at the age of 92. He wrote intensive scholarship for over 70 years. He's the author of over a thousand pieces, including dozens of books. And I think one of the points I make throughout the, one of the subtexts I make throughout the book is a lot of the things we take for granted in education today um, Things such as, as respect for diversity and, and differentiating the curriculum, all these things find their roots in John Dewey and his writings. What? Exactly. That was a good Maybe. follow-up question, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So you, you, so you didn't expect that? No, and, I didn't. And, and, part of the, and, and that's another uh, sub-theme that I expo explore throughout the book is why is Dewey so misunderstood and, and underappreciated? And let me make it clear, I place part of the blame, part of the onus on John Dewey himself because of the way he wrote. And I, his, his writings are very atomized and, and the social studies has been, been, been criticized for being taught in an atomized way. 
And, and, and that's my whole point. If we don't see the big picture about the purpose and, and, and the reasons for the social studies, how can we teach it that way? Right. I, that's a really good point. And I've read a couple things by John Dewey, and it, I don't know if you feel like it changes throughout his life. I, the one piece of work that I really recommend to people is experience in education. He wrote that later in his life. It's shorter, which is always a bonus, right? It's not too long. And I think he had worked through a number of ideas and debates that had already happened in the field. And so that's where I got into him. One of my first graduate classes, we read Experience in Education. And I remember being really moved by the whole piece and really inspired by it. And I showed it to other people and they thought it looked really boring. And that's when I realized there was something wrong with me. <laughs> so that's a really interesting um, work because Experience in Education, which was published in John Dewey's um, last phase of his life, it, if you read it carefully, what you realize is that he's really trying to fend off critics, um, critics who, who wrongfully accuse him of saying that, that basically children can do whatever they want, that, that we should have this free flow, um, the, the interests of the children trump the curriculum and everything else. And, and to be fair, some people interpreted Dewey, Dewey that way. Um, but it's an abridged version of democracy and education. And, and he makes it very clear that just like life, learning is along a curriculum. So on one side of the curriculum, you have the child, you have the curriculum itself with all the content and information, um, the disciplinary forms of knowledge like history and, or, or biology or whatever it happens to be. And at the other side of the continuum, you have the student, the child. Um, you have the processes of learning. You have the interests of the child. And so what Dewey was saying, and at which, which, what I think is very relevant today, is we've been erring, and we've been erring on the side of, of focusing on the curriculum and the content at the expense of the other side, the child. So what does that mean for a social studies teacher? That means that most of the social studies that is taught in schools is taught similar to, let's say, uh, a college history course, where we have these, these chronological frameworks and we march through time and, and, and teach children history this way. And John Dewey says, that's not the way we should be teaching it. What we should be teaching it in a way that allows children to actually engage in inquiry. And in the social studies in particular, we have to give students an opportunity to um, study uh, controversial issues that affect their daily lives. So, okay, no, I'm actually, I'm enjoying them quite a bit better now. I guess when I learned about them back in, in, in my uh, ed program, I didn't think I saw the connection to the, the, the content. I didn't realize that it was all about creating kind of an active classroom um, where students feel like they're reflected and they participate in the uh, in education. So, um, okay, John Dewey, I like you. I'm an easy convert. <laughs> One idea of John Dewey's that you just kind of reminded me of, Daniel, was 
his map metaphor, I think it's in the child in the curriculum, a piece he wrote earlier in his life. And I always liked the way he talked about the curriculum there because, and you can tell me if I got this wrong because I read this years ago, but in he kind of talked about thinking of how an explorer who is determining to make a map, how they have to, you know, go into the valleys and, and search through everything. And it's a long, arduous process. And eventually they come out of the other side with this map that they're able to make, right? But their depth of knowledge is incredibly deep. They've seen the rivers and they've smelled the trees and they've walked over the trails, all the things that actually go into this map that they made. But then when you hand that map to someone else, you're just giving them a construction kind of of your knowledge. And there's a lot missing, right? There's a lot of knowledge you don't have. You just have an overview map. And I think that's kind of the way he saw a lot of textbook learning, right? That somebody did a lot of work to put together this textbook. But then we give it to students and think they're supposed to understand the landscape, but all they got was a map. And we're not, we're, we're, we're taking all the exploration out of learning. And I always found that a powerful metaphor for how curriculum is developed and how we can't just hand students something we created they need to create knowledge themselves. I, I think you were incredibly incisive and succinct in how you stated that. It was, and, and eloquent because it, it, all, it all comes down to Dewey's minimum unit of analysis, which is experience. And Dewey did something that hadn't been done since Aristotle. He created this complete philosophical system that applies to all aspects of a person's life. And it centers on an experience because within an experience, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Or put another way, it includes both content and methods because in the real world, there's no such thing as a fixed end. We are constantly in motion. Everything around us is in motion. We are transacting with other people. We are transacting with the environment at the same time. And when the transaction ends, everybody and everything is changed, including the environment. Can you and explain, Daniel, can you explain what you mean? How is transaction different than interaction? Um, transaction suggests that there's a conclusion. And, and, and this is really the heart of doing philosophy. He said, we as human organisms over millions and millions and millions of years evolved through natural selection and as organisms and, and, and through this, this long evolutionary history, we encountered obstacles and problems and, and humans had to solve these problems. So you're constantly transacting with the environment as, as you try to solve these problems. And his whole premise is that's how young people should learn. So they should be transacting with problems. And, and the reason you want students to transact with um, social problems is because you want to create a situation where the environment is as supportive as possible to provide the most resources as possible for the individual. So when individuals flourish, humanity progresses. But here's the paradox of John Dewey. Even though he was an unabashed um, supporter of individualisms and, and individuals in general, you have to have 
an elaborated and complex social system in place in order to support the individual. And that's why he wrote so extensively about democracy. What do you mean by that? Why is democracy so important to, to make sure that there are um, resources for, for people? Um, because there is not a, another social system that we are aware of that respects individuality, that in, in democracy, if everyone has a voice and everyone it participates. So let's, let's use an example of, of, of a classroom. So Dewey was a great supporter of group work. And he was one of the first people, and, and if you read the beginning chapters of Democracy and Education that was published in 1916, he talks about how enriched a classroom becomes when students from different races and classes and, and walks of life are able to interact with each other because those are the resources for creating, uh, they're, they're, they're the tools that an individual will use to solve problems better. So that sort of social system best works within a democracy. I always liked how he explained democracy as being the best system in experience in education. He's really brief there. I'm, he goes into a lot more detail on democracy in education, but there he just Basically, you know, he's he's very pragmatic about it. And that larger context of John Dewey is he was part of the pragmatist movement, which is really the American philosophy, the American philosophical contribution to the world. And his view of democracy was, well, it works better than other systems. <laughs> so tell, show me a system that, that can produce more humane results and and we'll consider that. And so I always liked that kind of pragmatic approach. So you, you covered different components of John Dewey's work. In your, in your book, you looked at nature, the curriculum, experience, morality, inquiry, and citizenship as different kind of components in your book. Do you want to pick some of those ideas and, and maybe explain to us? So what can social studies teachers take into their practice from kind of what he's, John Dewey talked about? Sure. So I suggest that in order to move the needle towards the child and towards knowledge as something that's constructed, that teachers should start by actually examining their own beliefs. And we know out of this seminal research from the 1970s, there was a group of researchers from Purdue University that uh, studied extensively social studies teachers. And and we could even talk about John Say and the Social Studies Research Inquiry Project, which is more recent. So over a period of 50 years, we know from intense studies that most teachers view their jobs as, in, I, I hate to use this word, but it really is this, indoctrinating students to the truth. So there's, there's certain truths about patriotism and what it means to be a, a good citizen, like paying taxes and voting and stuff like that. And I want people to read my book and really question their own beliefs, because what they're doing is they're not giving students an opportunity to develop their own belief systems. And I truly believe that by trying to force students into this box, that what we're doing is we're alienating students, and that's why they think history is their most boring class. That's why they think social studies is, is not enlightening. 
So it starts with this idea that teachers need to analyze their own beliefs. And then I suggest that they make baby steps. Rather than teaching this chronological, disciplinary-focused type of pedagogy, I suggest that they integrate more long-term projects, thematic units, or especially issues-centered units and lessons. There's another interesting method that I think has hardly ever been used, but perhaps starting with reverse chronology units, where you actually start from the present and work your way back instead of the other way, which uh, most social studies teachers usually incorporate into their instruction. So that would be like, let's say, looking at, so right now in the news, Syria is obviously uh, very, very much in the news. And so looking at what's going on now and then tracing it back to the past, trying to see like where this began, trying to learn more about Syria and its, its environment. And, and, to me, and to me, Michael, part of that too is the finding the theme, like what's the th- big thematic issue in Syria that we want to understand. And once you identify that, then you tr- you, it's easier to trace that theme back. But of course, you could just also trace back Syria's history, right? And that's precisely exactly it. So notice where the starting point is. The starting point is the present with the child, with the student. And so that's what I'm talking about, moving the needle closer to the student. I don't think we give students enough credit for learning some of the disciplinary parts of of the curriculum um, in different ways, other than direct instruction and all the things that we do in our chronological approaches. I also suggest that once you, you, you start experimenting a little bit as a teacher, that you start to take other things into consideration and start thinking about honing your skills for conducting discussions. So... One of the keys to, to a doing approach to learning is recognizing that there are many, many different types of discussion techniques. And what the research tells us, uh, most social studies teachers, what they consider discussion is really solely teacher talk. What do you mean by teacher talk? It means that the teacher is asking a lot of questions And the questions they tend to ask require very short answers, very brief answers, most of the time, yes or no. And so when researchers go into their classrooms and actually measure the amount of time the teacher talks versus the students, we find this this whole situation is skewed towards the teacher doing most of the talking. Interesting. One of the one of the things that I started doing last year where I would have like students read an article and they had to come up with like some discussion questions and then they would be in two different groups. And I kind of sat in the back and every so often well, during their discussion, I would just trace the discussion back from student to student where questions originated, where that conversation went. And then I would go back and forth to different groups and then I would kind of show them like the picture of their discussion. And it was just interesting for them to like recognize where questions are coming from how these discussions are going back and forth is just between a couple students or are they engaging more of the students in their discussion. It was a really neat, uh, neat experiment. And students really liked talking about how the discussion went afterwards, particularly after they saw the picture. For some reason in my mind, I'm imagining like beautiful mind with you having like diagrams all across like the side of your classroom. That is that. I knew. <laughs> yeah, no, it was just on like a notebook paper. It's a lot easier, very difficult to do that on a big thing. Plus, I don't want them to know like which discussion I'm kind of following at that point because um, I don't want them to perform for me, you know. 
So I just kind of sit in the middle. I think the you know a term that's been used a lot recently has been uptake that that good teachers what they do is when students make comments they they take those comments and they they take them back to other students right so if a student says well I think World War II was caused by this the teacher says you know well Johnny thinks World War II is caused by this what do you think Cheryl and and poses it to other students and so the discussion they're they're a good job at taking student ideas and exploring them as opposed to just leading the discussion. And, and I've seen a lot of that lately, but I think good teachers also just ask questions, ask students to consider not just correct and tell them what's right or wrong, but ask them to figure it out. And that's precisely it. So um, part of changing the teacher talk to student talk is asking more open-ended questions. And I'd like to add another thing because it's, it's more than just studying controversial issues. It's more than just conducting effective discussions. We also have to allow students all different kinds of opportunities for them to take some sort of social action, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom. So this is really something that should turn into a whole school-wide effort. I like that because I think that's the what you mentioned earlier is is so much of social studies can feel very atomized, right? Like you're doing this one little part, but it doesn't fit with a larger whole. But when these discussions extend beyond your classroom, then all of a sudden it it takes on a character of that this is part of our life, right? And Dewey was really big that de- that democracy, for example, is a way of living, right? That's a kind of a common quote attributed to him or a common idea attributed to him. And I think that's the same way I, I always feel like he wanted us to look at learning is that the role of the teacher is to take those ideas, find ideas and take ideas that inspire students or interest students and connect those to those bigger ideas in the world and continue to explore those and start to do that as a way of living your life. And um, I know I've talked to my students a lot recently about looking at the social studies and everything, right? Like when you buy donuts in the morning, there's a social studies story there. Like where did donuts come from? They have a history. What are the economics of donuts, right? Is there a difference between local mom and pop donut shops and franchises? What is the, What are the civics of donuts? What are the um, uh, geography of donuts? Where did they come from? Where do they go? Dan, where this could be a series of to? t-shirts we're, we're dealing with right here. Yeah. Maybe. What is the social studies in this? <laughs> um, what, uh, Dan, what examples do you have of classes or schools that are doing this uh, in a way that you think that other schools could emulate? Sure. So when we find this in the, in the real world, we tend to find that some certain private schools, privileged children, they often have access to this type of education. And I'll use an example from my own observations in New York City public schools. When I go into the most ethnically diverse and and high-need schools, I find exactly the opposite happening. I find students sitting in these courses, which are on the spectrum of bad courses, I I cannot think of anything worse. They're called Regents Review Courses. And literally, the textbook companies have created these books that, that, that imitate the New York State Regents exams, and they're multiple choice questions, and 
they're DBQ style exam questions and students practice these questions repeatedly every single day. It's, it's mind numbing work. It's it, no surprise that students um, report that, that social studies is their least favorite subject. So the problem is we can find this sort of instruction in, in, in affluent schools, in the schools with the affluent student populations, but the students who truly need this type of instruction, they're the least likely to find it. So that seems to be the issue, right? That we have this system in which people are rewarded for their standardized test scores. And then we have this new, and what we think is a better way of teaching, um, this doing approach seems pretty great, but they're not being tested on that. And so, you know, teachers and schools seem to be less likely to do it. Is there any way to fix things? Well, I, hopefully, hopefully people will read my book. And uh, <laughs> there we go. It, really, what it, my whole thing is, why do, do this soul searching as a teacher Think about it's it's more it's more than the the logistics and the external circumstances of school. So let's let's think more of these things. So it's more than the tests. It's more than principals demanding a scripted classroom. It's more than just teacher beliefs. It's all of these things together. They create this culture of disciplinary forms of knowledge and, and teaching to the test and the narrowing of the curriculum and all these things that, that have been persistent issues. And these things have caused a lot of hand-wringing in the university communities as well. So if you look at what the researchers and scholars have been writing for the last 50 years, it's been consistently, how are we going to change this situation? So I believe Dewey offers a pathway because here we have a discipline that was founded on his ideals that has never been realized. So if people start examining their assumptions and taking risks, we can change this dynamic. And I think, Daniel, the, the thing that stood out from your book and Dewey's work is to refocus on what the curriculum is. What is it that we're studying and how that is a transactional relationship between the, te the teacher who has a lot of knowledge and their students? And I just always think, so if you're in a tested environment that, that seems kind of you know, overwhelming, one thing I always tried to do was when I started off a unit, I tried to figure out what's the heart of this unit? What is the theme? What is the issue that we all care about? Whether it's why do we go to war? you know, or what's just or right. And I just tried to get to the heart of that. And then I always tried to like open that unit of study by engaging students in that topic that they actually had interest in and trying to see if we then could connect. Well, is this a topic of study now that could further that bigger issue and continue thinking about it in our lives? And that continuity from, from the things we're interested in to, I want to continue to explore this you know, in my life, I think was just really corded to, to what Dewey did. And so I, I really enjoyed your book and I think a lot of teachers can take a lot from it. So Daniel, thank you so much for joining us again. Your, your book was a real joy to read. And, uh, I think there are a lot of lessons that we can take from Dewey that, that go beyond some of the simple learning by Dewey phrases. I always like to say learning by Deweying. I think <laughs> that he also that. made something that once said, what do the Dewey? Was that your Mountain Dew, your Mountain Dew thing? I don't remember that. Did I say that? I'll take credit. Yeah, take copyright. credit for it. I yeah, copyright that go. too. There you go. <laughs>
Then I would like to add, do we or do we not learn social studies? Oh, that's a thing. Okay. <laughs> it's, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it's interesting that we want to uh, modernize our you know, curriculum by looking back into the past. Yes. See, yes. These are all- it's amazing to read what Dewey wrote 100 years ago, and it resonates so strongly today still. So there's a lot, a lot of wisdom there. So, so thank you again so much for joining us, Daniel. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. And where can our listeners find you or your work online or in print? Well, the book is slated for publication in February of 2018. It's in production at the moment. And your listeners can find me at uh, Lehman College. And my email address is daniel.stuckert, S-T-U-C-K-A-R-T, at lehman.cuny.edu. And I will forward you my Twitter and, and all the other good stuff. Excellent. And for those who are interested in teaching in the Bronx, right, to get in touch with you? Yes. Please, uh, please come work for us. We're desperate for teachers. Okay. All right, Daniel. Thank you so much again for joining us. We've really enjoyed this discussion. We'll continue it online. And we will certainly remind all our listeners when your book is out that they need to buy it. Much appreciated. At the Vision of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat about Dewey or any, you know, educational philosopher, hit us up, tweet us at Visions of Ed. You can also, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere your podcasting needs are met. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. It helps people and put them on Michael's fridge. It helps people find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. One of the things I was thinking about, Dan, when you were talking about the mapping is, do you remember The Legend of Zelda, the game? (laughs) You should have included that in the episode. I should have. And this is why we can definitely include this in the afterthought. So, you know, you're you're kind of like you're Link and you're going through the little map and you're creating the map as you go along. And then you can see your map at the end of it. But that map isn't a part of your journey. They don't know how many little things that you've killed or how many times your sword went. Choo, choo. That, that's right. That's that is Dewey. Exa- that is De- Zelda is De- Dewey incarnate. <laughs> so. Hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs>